you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from excerpts between 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I'm going to begin with verse 1 of chapter 11, and I'll walk you through the narrative. Verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. In the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while David, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of, the, one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And this is God's word. David is a writer. He's a poet. He's a singer. He's a warrior. He's a shepherd. He's a king. But in this passage, David's life completely blows up. Now think about this. If David's life... If David's life, this great man after God's own heart, if his life can blow up, anyone's life can blow up. And yet, if David's life, this life can be restored, then anyone's life can be restored. There are three things we're going to see today. The first is the power of sin. The second is the power of friends. And lastly, the power of grace. The power of sin, friends, and grace. First, we're going to look at the power of sin. David, he is God's chosen king of Israel. Is, uh, you know, neighboring kings... Enemy kings, uh, they're very similar. They hoarded wealth. They ruled very ruthlessly, selfishly. They were self-preserving. They were cruel. 
But David was called to be a man after God's own heart. Godly kings, kings that were chosen by God, they were called to be modest. They were called to be just. They were called to be selfless. That's what it means to be after God's own heart. In verse 1, we see, in the spring, at the time when kings are off to war, at the time when kings are off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. He remained in his palace. What's happening here? David's becoming selfish. David's becoming self-preserving. There's a spiritual decay that has begun in David's heart. And it's taking place. And now, as a result, he's acting like other kings around him. And as a result, really, he's becoming very lonely. In verses 2 and 3, David encounters Bathsheba, the beautiful wife of Uriah. Now, who's Uriah? When David was a fugitive, David was a fugitive for a while, right? Uh, there was a civil war that had taken place for the kingdom. King Saul against really God's chosen king, who's David. And here's David, then a fugitive in the wilderness, in caves, hunted by King Saul. And David had a group of friends who voluntarily came alongside him, fought with him. They fought with him. They protected him. They were called as mighty men. They risked their lives for David. And so when David became king, these men, these particular men were promoted into his palace, promoted into the military. And one of them was Uriah the Hittite, one of David's closest friends. One of those very few people who shared those really intense experiences with David in the trenches, in war, together, standing together, alongside him, fighting with him and for him. David, in a sense, owes his life to Uriah. And yet still, with all that David has gained, with all that he's earned, with all that he's accumulated in verses 4 and 5, he wants, David, he wants Uriah's wife. He commits adultery with Uriah's wife. He gets Uriah's wife pregnant. And so we see these later verses, verses 6 to 13, David more and more is becoming scheming. He becomes evil. And that evil of David is juxtaposed by the nobility of Uriah in this passage. Uriah has honor. Uriah has courage. Uriah loves, you see the love of Uriah. Very, very explicit. His love for his people, his love for his men, his love for David, the honor that he has. Uriah lives the life that David should be living. But how does David respond? In verses 14 to 21, he has Uriah killed unjustly to cover over his sin. In fact, over half of the Ten Commandments have been violated in this passage. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is disgraced. They're about to bear a child. They quickly kind of arrange this marriage. The people in the palace know. Joab knows. Joab's seen this happening. The people in the palace, they can do the math. They kind of figure it out. Verses 18 to 25, David, is he, does he take steps back? Does he come back around? No. He kind of justifies what happened. He goes to Joab and he says, Uriah is dead. Good men die. That's what war is. That's what happens. Wow. What's happening? David is starting to lose the public trust which helped build the foundations of his kingdom. This is David, one of the greatest figures in the Bible. 
One of the greatest figures in all of ancient history. One of the greatest figures in all of ancient literature. How this happened. It's the power of sin. The power of sin. What does it teach us? Several things. One, the Bible is not some book about heroes. Heroes that act as great examples of faithfulness and obedience. Because if you look at David, a man regarded as a person after God's own heart, and yet David is a terrible example of faithfulness and obedience. The Bible is rather about weak, faithless, sinful people who, without God working in their lives daily, moment by moment, are absolutely powerless to their sin. You know, it's easy to walk into a church. You get to know people a while, and it's easy to start, you recognize their flaws. You start to see their sin patterns. And it's a very natural tendency, we're going to talk about this, for us to just jump all over those sin patterns. But the thing is, what this passage shows us is that the church is not about a place of heroes. You see? We talk about the church being a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. The Bible is about weak, faithless, sinful people who without God working in their lives moment by moment are absolutely powerless to this sin. And if you cannot admit that, you are one of those people who you think this place is supposed to be a museum. The second thing we see is there's absolutely no limit to our heart's capacity to be self-deceived. And because we're self-deceived, there's absolutely no limit to our heart's capacity to lie, to manipulate, to steal, to conspire, to make ourselves uh, feel, look or, or feel more noble than other people, to kill, and yet still justify what we do. Sin is powerful because it is insidious, and it's got this particularly blinding effect on our souls. It's easy to say. It's easy to look at another person. It's easy to look at David in this passage and say, I would never do that. But the minute you say that, you've taken an enormous step in your capacity to actually do it. Because the worst thing you could do is to believe there's no way that I would be capable of doing that. In fact, if you here believe, oh yeah, I see my sin, I am definitely capable of doing the worst things, you're actually one step forward on the path to renewal. Your inability to acknowledge the depths and the roots, the insidiousness of your sin, makes you more capable of committing sin. And it's because sin always begins as a seed. What is a seed? Seeds are small, in some cases microscopic. But they have great power. They're incredibly dynamic. Inside a seed is tremendous dynamic power that so that when it's watered properly, rooted properly, what happens is incredible power starts to get generated in that seed. And everything a tree needs to grow, everything a tree needs to root, and everything a tree needs to produce other seeds are contained in that one seed. Look in yourself. Examine yourselves. Look for that self-pity. Look for that self-righteousness. Look for that resentment. Look for that envy, that hurt pride, that self-centeredness. 
When those seeds find the right soil and their water properly, you, it will destroy you and destroy the world. And yet, we oftentimes tolerate it. We oftentimes tolerate it. You know why? Because deep inside, we still don't really believe that we're capable of doing that. There are people in this room that say, well, you see, I'm a Christian. I grew up in a church. I've been a Christian for a very long time. My worth is founded on Jesus' love for me. And yet, your self-image, moment by moment, is based, is based on your wealth. It's based on what you do. It's based on your role at church. It's based on your relationships with other people. It's based on having that one significant other in your life. It's based on being better than other people. It's based on living better than other people. And after a while, you start to justify coping with your sin. Today's generation, we, we look at our sinfulness and we don't address it. We don't hate our sin. We don't despise our sin. We don't battle our sin. We just cope with our sin. We just deal with it. We say, you know, well, in the movies, magazines, you know, it's normal to feel this way. It's that person's fault. They did this to me. They made me like this. Uh, my favorite one is, you know, well, it's, it's a process. It's a process. You know, it takes time, right? It's a journey. We love using words like it's a journey. It's process. But if you never hate your sin, if you're not fighting your sin daily, if you're not committed to fighting and hating your sin daily, sin's blinding effect is already taking hold in your life. And then one day they will sprout and they will grow into an oak tree of envy, an oak tree of hate, an oak tree of lies, an oak tree of self-justification. Thirdly, if you think about it, David is called to be modest, just. David is called to be selfless. David is called to reflect the kingliness of God, but now he's twisted and he's scheming and he's manipulative and he's murderous. What happens if you just tolerate and not address your sin? What happens is sin is dehumanizing. Sin is dehumanizing. David's actually becoming the opposite of what he was designed to be in reflecting God. David is becoming the opposite of what he was called to do as king. Sin promises to make you more of yourself. That's why we do it. That's why we live it out. And yet, sin always leaves you less than yourself. Verse 27, the thing that David had done, this is the, this is the last thing, the thing that David had done has displeased the Lord. In other words, with all that has happened, God sees. God knows. God hears. You think you're getting away with manipulation? Even the slightest bit of gossip, a lot of our gossip tends to come out of venting, you know, to our friends. Now, wait a second. What does that have to do with this passage and murder? I mean, David murdered his friend. And you're bringing up gossip? I want you to think about this. Most people here in this room are law-abiding citizens, for the most part, right? Uh, you're not going to most likely, uh, you know, I hope, uh, there's not a single person in this room that's going to that's gonna commit physical murder. But every time you hurt your friend's view of another person, every time you ruin another person's reputation behind their back, you are committing reputational murder. And God knows. You think you're doing it in private. Don't, don't repeat this. God hears. 
and he's displeased. But what if they deserved it? What if they had it coming? If you've ever watched that movie, The Unforgiven, it's an Academy Award winning movie with Clint Eastwood. The person uh, shoots up these guys and he says, well, I guess they had it coming. And Clint Eastwood responds, we all have it coming, kid. We all deserve that. There's no excuse. You think that you're committing sin, but sin is actually committing you. Sin is committing you. It's the power of sin. Second point, what does God do? Does he strike David down on the spot? Does he upend the kingdom on the spot? No. You know what he does? God is so gracious. He sends Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. The role of a prophet is the prophet acts as a prosecuting attorney on behalf of God whenever God's word has been dismissed, whenever uh, the king acts unjustly, because this is a king that God has chosen. So when the king acts wickedly or unjustly or dismisses God's word, God sends a prophet to prosecute the king. But Nathan doesn't come at David. Instead, what what he says is, you know, you're a king. You're a judge. I have a case for you. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, outlines this case that Nathan brings to David. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has many flocks and herds, but the poor man has one little ewe lamb. And he treats that that lamb like a member of the family, like a daughter. Sleeps with the lamb. That lamb drinks from his cup. This rich man takes in a traveler because of the social etiquette of the day, but he doesn't want anything that he provides for this man, this traveler, to come at his own expense. So what does he do? He violates laws, and he literally just, you know, intrudes into this poor man's life and steals his ewe lamb, kills the lamb, and feeds his guests. Now Nathan asks, what do we do about this? And David, he says two things, just Kind of remarkable. The first is, he acts like a king. He acts justly. He says, that rich man must pay four times over for what he's done. Four times over because of this. Why? That's the law. The Mosaic law says that when you violate, when you steal something such as a lamb, right, you pay four times over. But then he says something very interesting. He says something very interesting. Verse 5, it says, David burned with anger against that man. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives... This man deserves to die. I mean, that is just over the top. You know why? Because there's nowhere in Mosaic law, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that stealing a lamb uh, results or deserves capital punishment. What's going on? One of the best ways, one of the best ways to cover over your own sinfulness is to sentence other people to death. David's conscience is waking up. When your spouse or your, your friend, a good friend, confronts you and says, I think you're like this and this. How do you respond? You respond like David in chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. No, that's not how you respond. Usually what happens is you get angry. You start to justify yourself. You get very defensive. You respond unfairly. Or you may say, thank you for, you know, speaking to me. And then you go home. And what do you do? You pick up the phone, you call your friend, you say, can you believe what this person said to me? We vent. You know why you're doing that? It's because what they said to you is waking you up. David isn't angry because Nathan is wrong. David's actually angry because Nathan is right. 
there's some lessons here. How do you know that God is confronting you with your sinfulness? How do you know? One, I mean, you see this very clearly, we become inordinately judgmental of other people's narratives. We become inordinately defensive. We become inordinately sensitive to criticism. We just can't, criticism just devastates us. We just can't deal with it. David's own guilt is grabbing him. That's why he flares up. I mean, who is this man? Does he not understand justice? Does he not know the law? Does he not know where he is? Does he not know who I am? We become inordinately judgmental. Number two, we see the promise of and the presence of good friends in our lives who speak into us. Nathan says, you are the man. You are that person. Saul had Samuel. David has Nathan. In each of these narratives, there is a friend who, you, who knew you whom you cannot run from. We need a friend who sees us. We need a friend who knows us. That's not enough. We need a friend who has the courage to speak, and yet that's not enough. We need a friend who actually does speak into you, who has the courage. You should be embracing these friends. You should be thankful for these friends, but we despise those friends. You need a friend who sees you, who knows you. They may not even know you that long, but they know you. And they speak into you because they have the courage to speak into you. And even that's not enough. The third thing we see from this is look at the way Nathan approaches David. I mean, it's important to speak into your friends. But Nathan is masterful. He cuts through. We need a friend that can cut through all of our defenses. Slice through all the defensive tendencies. Keep in mind, when Nathan approaches David, he doesn't say, he doesn't begin with, you are the man. You are this person. That's not what he does. He concludes with, you are this person. We need a friend who intentionally loves us, but then loves us wisely. Now, you got to understand what I mean by that. We say we need a friend who intentionally loves us, but loves us wisely. We look at friendship and we say, wow, like, it was such, that person's such a good friend because they hear me. I get to share. That's what friendship is. Even not, you don't have to be a Christian to be a friend like that. You don't have to be a Christian to share with another person. You don't have to be a Christian to vent to another person. A true gospel friendship is someone who intentionally loves you, who loves you with great agenda, but it's not your agenda. Who loves you with great purpose, but it's not your purpose. You know that God has brought you together to walk along this journey. And along that journey, you know that there are things in this person's character and life. God has, by his Holy Spirit, has brought you together in union. In fact, marriage, which is a union, the ultimate union, it's the only covenantal union we see right here, right, in terms of relationally, right? You're not covenantally bound to your kids, but you are covenantally bound to your spouse. You know what? That is more than it being about romance, more than it being about sex. You know what it's about? It's about friendship. God has brought you together to be in union with each other in marriage to do what? To become closer in union with Christ. That is what friendship is. At the heart of friendship, be brought together to bring one another closer to Christ. 
So just hearing somebody is not being a gospel friend. Just listening to somebody or even responding to them is not a gospel friend. It's to be able to lead that person out of their anger and pointing them to Christ. It's about leading them out of their sinful tendencies when they're angry and bringing them closer to Christ. Are you that kind of a friend? Do you have a friend like that? Most of us assume we, and we just assume we intentionally love and love wisely. But remember, David is a liar, a murderer, right? An adulterer, a conspirer. Why didn't Nathan, who was called by God to approach the king, why didn't he just go after David and indict him? And the answer is because God loves David. Nathan loves David. Nathan doesn't want to ruin David. God wants to save David. And so Nathan wants to save David. Nathan knows if you condemn a person just up front, it's going to make, them, make it almost impossible uh, for that person to repent, right? On one hand, it glorifies God to bust through the line and sack them with the truth about their sin. But you know what? It glorifies God even more if they repent. And Nathan gets it. I mean, looking at David and seeing how much sin has kind of gripped David, his deep-rooted sin has kind of gripped David, seeing how bad things have gotten, he knows that what happened to David couldn't have happened overnight. It couldn't have. And so he knows that there's this tangled web of self-deception and self-justification and, and there are many defense mechanisms that are oftentimes set up in that tangled web. And so Nathan knows that if he says the wrong thing, on one hand, he could get killed. David's a king. So he's got to navigate very, very carefully. He doesn't want to get on the other end of that, right? He has to navigate very carefully because the goal is not to get it out there. The goal is to rescue and redeem and save David. Now, I'm going to give you some examples where friends are needed. David is a king. So that means that David's work, uh, his laws, how he spends his wealth, uh, his decision-making, his relationship, uh, his judgments, his family, these are all part of, they're just intertwined with his calling. But we are all created in the image of God. And God is a king. We are all established. You know why you're working? You're not just working because, like, you got to do something to make money. You're working. God has placed you into that job to be a kingly person. You are to establish order where there was once disorder. You are there to establish goodness and justice. And, and, uh, and in the context of, of doing the work, right, That's, we're going to have that in heaven, right, Jesus himself is like Adam did that, right? So we are called to work and much like uh, to reflect the kingly nature of God. So your work, how you spend your money, how you make decisions, your family life, how you, how you conduct yourself in family, how you view family, your decision making, your relationships in the church, outside the church, right? Your judgments, they're all intertwined with your calling as king. You're called to steward over these things. How do you steward over these things? How do you shepherd over these things? You see, it's easy to go to friends when you're angry, to call them up and just be incredibly angry and vent. You know why? Because sinful anger leads to loneliness. 
You're isolated. You've become, in a way, become isolated. And so we crave relationship. We're built that way. So when you're angry and you're venting, what do you do? You call up a friend. We need friends. But see, in that case, you're using your friends. Do you call your friends up when you're interested in somebody and you want to hear their judgment genuinely? If godly uh, friends don't like the way you are living your life, do you trust and take it in? What about how you spend your money or how you raise your kids? What about how you conduct your relationships in the church? Today's generation, you know, scholars call it apocalyptic dating and apocalyptic relationships. Relationships are really just about the here and now. And it's just about having shared experiences. Because there's, this, there's a semblance of spiritual experience when you have a shared experience together mutually. And it generates a thrill. It's almost like a spiritual thing. So we, today in our world, in our generation, we just go for the thrill without any sense of responsibility without any sense of commitment. So as a result, we don't build lasting friendships and certainly don't build lasting relationships. We, we only gravitate towards relationships that fulfill us for a moment, but the moment um, we're put off by a person, what do we do? We break the relationship. You know, it starts inside and then we just say, I'm done. You know, canceled, we say, right, nowadays. That's the word, right? You're canceled. So we don't build lasting relationships. We use words like, you know, you're triggering me right now. When actuality, God is stirring up your conscience through your friends. We use words like, this is oppressive or abusive, when it's called accountability a lot of times. You are actually denigrating people who have been oppressed. You're denigrating the real experiences of people who've been abused. You're denigrating the real experiences of people who've truly been triggered. And we cancel people without dialogue very quickly because what we're saying is, I am not fulfilled in this relationship. I'm going to move on. Point is, sometimes we reject Nathans when we actually need Nathans. God sends to us friends from whom we cannot escape. Someone whom you know, who loves you, on one hand is not afraid to challenge you, who knows is called to you, and yet on the other hand knows how to navigate every defense. Oh, those kinds of people are annoying, aren't they? They're super annoying because they know how to cut through every defense. You want to cancel them, but you can't. You can't. You need those types of people in your life because they will truly act as a vehicle for the grace of God. Nathan gets, goes in to the palace. He goes to David. He gets into David's story. He disarms David. And then in the story, he convicts David, speaks into David, and thus is able to give life to David. Nathan saved David's life. You see that? You know, as a friend on the receiving end, and I've been there, they're like, you're ruining my life. Everything was going well until you came here and you're telling me all these things about me. But if they really love you, and if they're your friends, they're trying to save you. You see that? Yes. It's always going to feel like a bit of a courtroom. I mean, you see that here in this text. 
There are questions, there are answers, a lot of tension, right? But there's lots of love. It's their love. I mean, they're going to put themselves out there, risk your friendship with them, knowing you, knowing how toxic or caustic this can get. But they're going to put themselves out there, risk your friendship, risk your view of them. Most of us are not as careful as Nathan. Most of us are not as receptive as David. But we need to be Nathans in other people's lives. I mean, you have friends. Everybody here has friends. They have flaws. They have deficiencies. There are deep-rooted sins in their lives that are really hurting them, in fact, damaging them, ruining them, and they don't see it. They don't see it. Do you really love your friends? Because if you're honest, most people in this room will say that they avoid telling the truth to the fullest extent that their friends probably need to hear it. If they were honest, they'll say it's because they're afraid of losing their relationship or their friendship. I'm going to ask you again. Do you really love your friends? Do you really love your friends? But we don't just need to be Nathans more. We need to, we need Nathans in our lives. Hebrews chapter 3. Exhort one another daily. That word exhort means confront. Confront one another daily. Hebrews chapter 10. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That word spur, that phrase spur one another, it actually means almost to come alongside. And the word that's being used is synonymous with the work of the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo. Work, spur one another on. Pull, push, argue, fight. Because the Bible always teaches us that the things that are destroying us most are the things that we often see the least in ourselves. Easy to see it in other people. See it the least in ourselves. Power of friends. Right? Lastly, we're going to look at the power of grace. Chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now think about this. David is a king. David is a judge. He should have been just, but he was corrupt. And in a sense, now he's on trial. He should have been condemned, but now he's not condemned. He's forgiven. How did that happen? Uriah died when David should have died. Uriah paid the price. Uriah, Uriah actually had honor. He actually had love. He actually had courage. He lived the life that David should have lived, but then he paid the price that David should have paid. Why did God let that happen? Where is the justice? Centuries later, in John chapter 19, you have Jesus Christ standing before Pontius Pilate. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king, he's the ultimate judge. He is truly innocent, most innocent person that ever walked the earth. In fact, he was sinless. Even Pilate looked at Jesus and says, I find no fault with this man. So he's the greater Uriah. He had honor, but he had ultimate honor. He had love. He had ultimate love. He had courage. He had ultimate courage. He had faithfulness. He had ultimate faithfulness. He had obedience. He had ultimate obedience. And yet he is the one placed on trial. He should have been set free, but he is the one that's condemned. And he pays the ultimate price on the cross. He is the greater Uriah. Because Jesus Christ lived the life that we should live and yet died the death that we should die. God sends a prophet to David to make things right. You are that man. But for Jesus, who did God send? 
No one comes to make it right. No one comes to point to the Pharisees and says, you know, you religious people, you are those men. No one comes to Pilate and the Roman guards and all those people, the irreligious people, to say, you are, all of you are condemned. And so on the cross, we see the ultimate injustice. Jesus Christ, the king, the sinless one, suffering and being tortured, dying on the cross, bleeding on the cross, like Uriah, dying and abandoned by his king, abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. In other words, what he's saying is, I have been forsaken, I have been left for dead. For what? For who? For sinners like David. That's why David will not die. And for sinners like us. Jesus Christ was tried and accused and charged and condemned, and he gets the cross, and he suffers, and he bleeds. He's in agony. He's restless. He dies. He's forsaken so that we would be accepted and embraced so Nathan can say, you're not going to die. There is an assurance that you will be forgiven. So when Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sins, Jesus Christ literally took our sin and placed it on himself. When you repent, you're not earning forgiveness as a result. You're not earning salvation when you repent. If you think that way, you're never going to know where you stand with God. You're going to constantly be working to earn your way back. You're always going to feel guilty or condemned because the power of sin is overwhelming. It's just way too great. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is innocent and he lived the life that I should live, then paid the price that I should have paid for my sin, your forgiveness is not based on your record. It's based on Jesus' record. It's not based on your merit. It's based on Jesus' merit. It's not based on... It's not based on your goodness. It's based on Jesus' goodness. It's not based on your faithfulness. It's based on Jesus' faithfulness. Then repentance doesn't earn forgiveness. Jesus Christ earned our forgiveness, but repentance accesses it. That's the power of the gospel. To forgive you, to pardon you for good for all time. When you take that in, you're not guilted into confession. You're not guilted into repentance. It melts you into repentance. It invites you into repentance. It gives you the power for repentance. Now you have the power to battle sin. Now you have the power and the way to be reconciled and return to the heart of God. You realize the reason why I wanted her embrace is because I walked away from your embrace. The reason why I, went, I fell into her arms is because I walked away from your arms. We need Nathans to sometimes show us the way. The gospel gives us the wisdom and the power and the humility to listen to our Nathans. We need to listen to our Nathans. But the gospel also gives us the wisdom and the power and the love to be great Nathans. You can be a Nathan but the gospel gives you even greater love to be a great Nathan. And when you do that, when you need Nathans in your life, take in Nathans in your life, and you are able to be Nathans to others, well, Donnie, I need to grow a little bit. My knowledge of Scripture is weak. Look, you have friends, right? And God has given you incredible insight into those lives and say, wow, they are a certain type of person. That's wisdom.
That doesn't just come from you. God has given you that insight. That means he's called you to speak. But when you are able to combine that truth with love, you'll be able to navigate those defenses and be a great Nathan. That's the beginning of really getting the gospel. And if you get it, then it's the beginning of really then understanding what it means to have gospel community. Let's pray together.